Welcome to the Knowing Jesus Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bachman, and I am a licensed professional counselor. On the show, we read and unpack the Bible together with the goal of knowing Jesus better. Go figure. Good morning. Today we are in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 25. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. All right, this is the first part of our reading for today, so let's unpack it. (laughs) As If you're like me, sometimes uh, it's hard to just listen for large chunks of information, especially if you have a question or thought on your mind. So the recap is Jesus is invited to a wedding. Uh, They've run out of wine, which is a taboo thing to do in this age of hospitality. And Jesus's mother comes to Jesus and says, hey, can you you help bring some wine, Uh, make some more wine for this couple so they do not have to bear the shame. Something really interesting happens between Jesus and his mother. He says, my time has not yet come. So one can gather that this is not Jesus's public ministry moment yet. And as you see, he doesn't do this miracle publicly. Only a handful of people know. He obviously is not breaking the will of the Father. Jesus will, throughout John, talk about how he does what the Father is doing. He says what the Father is saying. He obeys and serves the Father. So even though he's saying his hour's not yet come, again, this is a public ministry statement instead of like, hey, my hour's not come and my mom's asking me to do this, so I'm going to go against my father and do it anyway. That is not what's happening. As one can imagine with a non-public ministry moment, <laughs> the miracle in one sense is miraculous and yet it's so simple and basic. Jesus just asks people to fill jugs with water. He turns the water into wine. It's served at the banquet. The lead banquet individual says, wow, this is the greatest wine ever. (laughs) You saved the best wine for last, which is not traditional. As it points out in the story, by this time in the night, people would have had enough to drink. They wouldn't have told the difference. So this is a classic example where we can filter and put information into the text that just isn't here. Now, in no way am I trying to slander or put down my brothers and sisters in Christ, but when we have theology that says that wine and alcohol, you just can't do it and Jesus never drank it, 
We don't see that in the text. Jesus is creating wine. He is very much condoning the fact that people are celebrating this wedding with wine. He makes more wine. They've even maybe had a little too much drink, and he still gives them more wine. Now, in any way, is that saying that Jesus is okay with drunkenness or that we can get drunk? No. We have to hold the balance. Although the scripture doesn't say uh, you can't ever drink wine, um, we also are commanded to like make sure that we're aware and that alcohol can lead to to lower inhibitions and doing things we wouldn't normally do if we weren't under the influence. And so, as with everything in the Bible, we're supposed to hold the tension that everything that God has made is good, and yet we also have to use it responsibly and in a God-honoring way. If someone comes to the realization, hey, you know what? I know I can lawfully drink, yet every time I drink, I'm a jerk, I'm mean, I'm flirtatious, and they choose to say, hey, I'm not going to drink alcohol anymore. That's awesome. You're choosing to honor God. Should you impose that on other people? No. Should you judge the brother or sister who makes that decision? No. We should celebrate each person pursuing the Lord in his or her conviction. Also, just want to give a shout out to the wonderful production, The Chosen. Uh, I think they do an excellent job showing the humanity of Jesus, the honoring of Jesus in their portrayal. Again, it's not in the text as often as the show does, but it's within the parameters of what could have happened, and that is beautiful. To really know Jesus, he is a God human who delights in us and wants to spend eternity with us. And so, of course, he would go to a wedding and celebrate a commitment, a vow before God, love, and enjoying the humans that he created to be with him in the first place. In wrapping up, this is Jesus's first miracle. And in verse 12, I just noticed this. It mentions his mother, brothers, and disciples were there. His disciples believed in him for the first time. His brothers are there. And in just a few chapters, we're going to see that they don't believe in him. And yet they were here witnessing the first miracle. And it's just interesting reality that Jesus's brothers took a long time to believe in him. Moving on, we're going to the second part of our reading today, John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it again in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem, at the Passover festival, Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. 
All right, quick recap. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem. It's the Passover. This is a celebratory moment and a time of reflection. He enters the temple. He sees people selling cattle and various animals, money changers. He gets upset. He overturns tables. The Jews are like, what gives you the authority to do this? Uh, he mentions his, his basically death and resurrection. Uh, the Jews don't understand it. Later on in the story, it says Jesus performed many miracles of which we are not privileged to see, and many believed in his name. Um, and then Jesus doesn't trust humanity because he knows our hearts. Okay, little backstory here, at least on the animal exchange. All right, so the selling of animals um, was needed and good, but it wasn't supposed to happen in the temple courts. Specifically, the area they were doing this was devoted to the Gentiles to be able to pray. The Jewish people at the time were missing the fact that God was inviting Gentiles and had, in some level, been preparing for them all along. And here was a special area where they could come and pray to Yahweh. They couldn't go any further into the temple than this. They were on the outskirts of it. But here the Jews were disrespecting God's command and God's availability made for them. And they were taking up all the space by selling cattle, sheep, and doves. Jesus gets infuriated that they are turning the temple, instead of it being a place that's invitational and open to all Jews and Gentiles, they are using the space to make profit and keeping the Gentiles out at the same time. Now, I wonder about verse 16 in, in particular. Um, doves were reserved for the poorest of poor, so I wonder why it emphasizes a second time to those who sold doves, verse 16. He said, get out of here stop turning my father's house into a market. I wonder if there's something else going on in the text. I don't have enough theological background to know, but doves were significant in that it was reserved for the, the sacrifice was for the poorest of poor because it was the cheapest sacrifice one could buy. Verse 18, the Jews responded, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? They will repeat this phrase throughout the book of John. They want a sign to see that Jesus has the right to do what he's doing. Ironically, they will often ask for this even after he has just done a sign, showing the hardness of their heart that no matter what he does, they do not believe in him. They are stuck in their own ways. They do not want to be told what to do. And instead of just judging them, we should be aware that the Jews in this, this story, throughout the story, represent all of our hearts. We, like them, are hardened. And the more we know about God, the more we can be tempted to be snooty and superior and think we have it all together and then very much miss what God is actually doing. As for the money changers, I'm not sure if they were taking up space of the Gentiles as well, but my Bible commentary shows me that they were not supposed to have currency exchangers in the temple itself. So here the Jews are breaking at least two laws. And yet as Jesus is trying to make the situation right, they question him and say, what authority do you have to do all this? He doesn't need any authority. Anyone could have said, hey guys, you're breaking the law. You're not supposed to do this. Another good reminder and realization to have is that God is holy and the temple is holy. Now, holy means other or set apart or way above and beyond us and perfect and pure. But at least in this instance, it's very much supposed to be set apart and other. So the temple should be purely about focusing on God and not being distracting and having other things going on, as well as it shouldn't be taking the place meant for people to show up and seek Yahweh. Lastly, we see in verses 23 through 25, again, 
Jesus is doing miracles, people believe in him, and then it says Jesus did not trust anyone, for he knew all people. We will see themes in this gospel and others about how the people wanted to make Jesus a king, they want to force him into a political position, they want him to overthrow Rome, they want him to deliver them of their problems right here and right now. And they missed the ministry of Jesus. They were trying to make him be something he was not. This should be a humbling reminder that God is above every human institution, every human plan, desire, and dream. God is for us as human beings and for our human flourishing, but human flourishing might mean suffering, challenges, and things not going our way. God is not for our agenda. He has his own agenda of which we are supposed to submit to. There's another practical challenge for us today. Just as the Jewish people of the time were excluding people from coming into the presence of God, we too do that to this day. Do we exclude people because of the way they look, the way they dress, the way they talk? Do we exclude people because of their sexual preference or some other identifier? Do we exclude people based on their political standpoints? Do we demonize them, whatever side they reside on? Just because we accept people doesn't mean we have to affirm their life decisions. Jesus didn't go around saying, hey, no matter what you're doing, I'm for exactly what you're doing. But he showed that he was for the people themselves and wanted the people to come to him without exception, without exclusion. The Gentiles of that day were considered worse than dogs. They were the moral filth of society. And yet Jesus wanted them to have a place in the temple. This is an uncomfortable reminder, just like the people in Jesus' time, the Pharisees, who claimed to know the scriptures, and yet the scriptures had no real effect on their hearts. And if we too read the Bible and aren't made uncomfortable and hate it sometimes because of what it tells us to do or not to do, then we probably aren't reading it correctly. This is all in the context of the Father's love. This isn't about rules that beat us up over the head, but it's about showing our very hearts that our hearts are corrupt. And it's one of the reasons we are in such desperate need for a Savior to make us pure and to make us whole again. Well, that concludes our episode for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. And please drop a comment, question, thoughts, anything and listen to the outro for more information. See you soon. Thank you so much for listening. I'd love to hear something you've learned or want to learn more about. You can share comments and continue the conversation on social media. Links are provided in the description. You may be wondering, hey, Brian, we're supposedly reading through the New Testament in five months, but you only cover 40 verses every other day. How is that possible? You, my friend, are observant. The short answer is we are building towards more content daily. But I also need your help. Liking, sharing, telling your friends are all very helpful. And the most helpful thing you can do is to become a supporter for as little as $4 a month. Thanks again for listening. I can't wait to dive into more life-giving scriptures with you.